Turn to James, if you would. We're in a series on the book of James. If you're new or visiting, we're in chapter 1, so you haven't missed too much. You can go on our website and download the messages if you want to be able to catch up. But we are uh, this morning in verses 26 and 27. It reads like this. If anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, a, a, a way we would word that, how we'd say that in our language is, um, if we think we're religious but we don't bridle our tongue, we deceive our heart, right? We're deceiving ourselves. So uh, get that tone and te- context right. This person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So last week we covered the two-thirds front part of this verse and this week we're going to cover that last little phrase, to keep oneself unstained from the world. And we're going to look at that. Um, this is a little phrase, it's not a big one, but it carries a, a huge impact, a powerful punch. Why is this so imperative or or so important that we would stay unstained? Uh, Well, if you've lived any length of time, you know how sin stains your emotions. It stains your thinking. It stains your heart. Um, You know, some some stains come out pretty quick, right? You get on them really fast and, oh, good, it doesn't, it's not bad. And other stains, no matter how hard you work to get them out, you might get three quarters of the way, but... You can still tell because nobody else would notice it, but you know it's there, right? So you can still see it, even though others would not even notice it. Uh, and, and sin is like that. It, it can take a, it, a long time to get, get it out. There's three things that uh, can get stained when we're talking about, well, about us, what gets stained? And I want to list them up here for us. Here's three things that can get stained. All right? See if you recognize any of these. First that can get stained is my conscience. Uh, when children are little, we, we say that they're in the age of innocence, right? They, they are innocent of the things of the world, is the actual words we use. And what we mean by that is that life is a sandbox, right? Mom, can I go out and play? Yeah. And it's my Tonka trucks and my buddy. And that's the world, right? And a day lasts forever. And it was so much fun. And then mom tucks in bed and mom and dad pray with you. And, you know, you go to say, what a great day. Well, when you get older, there's a lot more things involved with life than a sandbox and a Tonka truck. Right. And we say that they grow up, which that's important. But it's also easy to get stained. Right. Where suddenly uh, they're not the same little boy that they used to be. And so our conscience can get stained. It can get seared or hardened or scarred so that it does not respond the way that it used to. And so Scripture warns about that. Second thing that can get stained is our relationships. There are probably a number of us here this morning that are sitting here and at one time you had a friend, maybe even a best friend, that is no longer your best friend because of something that happened between the relationship You could not even possibly imagine your life without that person, and yet they have been gone for a long time now. And the odds of them ever coming back are probably zilch. And what happened is the relationship got got stained. Uh, Somehow somebody sinned, somebody said something in a way that shouldn't have been said, and that created a breach in the relationship. And now instead of together this way and you're doing life together, it's this way. And you're not doing life together at all. And you're wondering, how in the world 
did that happen? Right? And we probably have sinned against others, and others have sinned against us in that way that that no longer relationship is viable or exists. And then the other thing that gets stained is our ability to do ministry. Uh, one of the things that uh, I found quite surprising, I, I shouldn't, I suppose, but I'll often go out and have coffee with somebody and, and they'll often be quite vehement against the church or me or the pastor or Christianity. And, um, and a lot of times I'll stop and I say, can I ask you a question? And they'll go, sure. And I go, did you ever have a call of God on your life? And just this shock, like, how in the world did you know to ask that question? And I said, well, it just seems to me like you're fighting it too hard. You know, the old Shakespeare, me thinks the lady doth protest too much. And you're protesting too much. There's got to be a reason why. Did, did you ever have God put his hand on and the, and Sure enough, you track back in the story and you find out back in junior high, back at camp, back at a retreat, God had actually talked to them and had a call in their life and they were running from the call. Um, I remember one guy in particular, really smart young man, and uh, had his parents buffaloed over a log. And I asked him that question and he had to admit that God had talked to him at a retreat, but he was running. I said, so you know, you know. This is all the game you're, you're perpetrating, but you know. I said, how far are you going to run? As hard as I can. I said, well, run hard and run fast. Okay? He goes, why? I says, because wherever you go, there you is. Right? He, he looked at me with this kind of haunted look in his eyes because he knew what I meant. He was having a difficult time outrunning the grace of God. So these, these are just... Uh, three areas to get our thinking together this morning on how, what sin stains, how it can stain. Uh, obviously, there's a lot more areas that Scripture covers, but these are three good marker ones. If you were to ask yourself, if I wanted to do an evaluation with the Lord, just how am I doing? This would be a great place that you could do that. Just how am I doing in my conscience? How am I doing in my relationships? And uh, how am I doing in my ability to do ministry? Uh, the ministry one is interesting because... Uh, I've heard a lot of people lately, uh, it's, it's kind of weird, but as I've talked to different people in different business, oh yeah, I used to really be into the church thing. And that's the actual words used. And I didn't have time to ask them, but I'll guarantee you, if I had the chance to have a conversation with them, they would tell me some story of how sin uh, captivated them and they just ended up hooking in a complete 180 in a different direction than where they've been, but they still have fond memories of it. I, I used to do church. Right? So, the question this morning, does grace cover all this? Yes, it does. But, let's remember that grace is always extended when repentance and forgiveness are asked for. You've got to actually come and ask to be washed and ask for the stains to be taken out. But grace does not eliminate the consequences of our sins. And I think that's a very important point. Uh, those consequences can really stain. Again, let me, let me remind us that we can choose our sin, but we cannot always control the consequences of our sin. I think that's one of the reasons why we sin, is we think, I know exactly what's going to happen, how far... We never have the picture that 30 years later that sin's going to come back and haunt us. Right? We, don't, we aren't thinking that way when we sin. We're thinking about the current pleasure 
presence, gain, whatever that's going to come there. And here's the scary part. We can't control how far that stain spreads. Okay. Uh, these two young people, uh, the room was packed out. I mean, I was standing at the pulpit and it was standing room only all along the, all along the wall, all along the back wall, all around that wall, and the place was packed. And every person in that room was reeling from what had happened. They would have no idea how incredibly staining the, the choice that they made was. So let's take a look at this. We're going to walk through this idea now of staining and unstaining together. And we'll start out here with a good old picture of earth. All right. When James is talking about keeping unstained from the world, he's not talking about we have to leave this planet and go colonize Mars. Right. Uh, A.K.A. Stephen Hawking. Right. And again, what's the problem if we go and colonize somewhere? You know, Hawking's whole postulation is that AI is going to take over and control us as humans, so we've got to get out of here and, and take over other planets. What's the problem with that problem? Well, the same thing. Wherever you go, there you is. Right? The problem's going to follow us no matter where we go. This planet is awesome. And I mean, when it operates the way it's supposed to, it is absolutely dazzling in its creation and sustained goodness. And yet there's a clear command to be in this world, but not of this world. That's what James is talking about. Does that mean I have to hate nature and beauty and scenery? No, that does not. We're not talking about that. Uh, I was talking to Andy Smith this morning, and he had gone up in the Cascades and gorgeous pictures of a hike they took. and I mean, it, it, Stunning scenery in the Northwest. That's not what it's talking about. What James is talking about here is a world order or a, a system that is anti-God. Let me show you where we go with this and what that looks like. Talking about the word cosmos here. Remember Carl Sagan, the cosmos is all there is, right? Cosmos all there was, all that will ever be. That was his trinity. And um, I imagine he has a little different view of it right now. Okay? Uh, probably Hawking does as well. But um, this word cosmos here when it's talking about the world, if you look up in Vine's Expository Dictionary, which is kind of the Bible of the biblical definition of words, it talks about the present condition of human affairs, an alienation from an opposition to God. And there's the key phrase. The present affairs in alienation of and in opposition to God. So we're talking about the world in that sense. Uh, Ephesians 2 captures this idea. Uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says this, You were dead in your trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. Notice that word, the course of this world. That phrase, that's the cosmos. That's what they're talking about here. Following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So Paul's trying to get them to separate the planet from a system that's going on in the planet. This actually shows up in Scripture. Paul had to straighten out uh, some confusion that had occurred because of this very teaching. Uh, he had written to some, uh, the, actually the Corinthian church, about someone who had sinned in the church. And uh, he was saying, why aren't you dealing with this? And, uh, and then he said, you've got to stay away from sexually immoral people. And 
And then he had to clarify what he meant because they kind of overamped on the idea. So if you look at 1 Corinthians, uh, we'll go here in a second, uh, chapter 5, verse 9, he says, I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy or swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to get out of the world. Right? Paul is instructing how they should conduct themselves within the church. Because the church is the kingdom of God. How you should act within the church. Stay away from sexually immoral people within the church. Not out there. That's who they are out there. That's what you should expect from out there. And so the question is, uh, where, where's the intersection lanes? Where's, where does this idea of the planet we live on and then this cosmos, how do they connect and weave with each other? So let's take that a little farther and uh, lay out the differences. I found a, um, a great short little um, uh, well, vignette from Billy Graham where he lays this out and uh, says this. Now, here, I'd like you to do something. Just a little rabbit trail. Guess what year he wrote this while we go through it. So one track with this, the Cosmos World thing, but then just think in your mind, when did he write this? So here's Billy, all right? Billy Graham. Says, as I read the New Testament, it's clear that we are not to become entangled with the world. Now, at first glance, a new Christian might shrink from this idea. But the question I want to ask today is this. What is the world? And he says there is at least three meanings attached to the word world. First, the Bible says that there is the created world. That's the one we had up on the screen. God made the world and everything in it. I found it. Acts 17, 24. Second, there are the inhabitants of the world whom God loves and for whom Christ died. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, John 3, 16. Third, there is the cosmos, the world system, which is headed by Satan and based upon selfishness, greed, and pride. This is the world that God warns about and it is this world system and the philosophy of that world system that Christians are to shun and remain free from. He says the warnings are clear. The Bible says in Romans 12, do not be conformed to this world. The Bible teaches in Galatians that Christ gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age. And the, evil, the word used there for evil age is cosmos. Right? It's that word again. In other words, the world was such a great danger to our souls that this danger caused Christ, the Son of God, to go to the cross to deliver us from it. Throughout the Bible, the lines are definitely drawn between the world of unbelievers and the children of God. Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God, James says in chapter 4. We'll get to that probably this summer. Jesus himself said, the world has hated them because they are not of this world, just as I'm not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. It's found in John 17. Again, Jesus said, if the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. That term world there is again the word cosmos. The Bible also teaches that the Christian will face opposition in the world. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution, the Apostle Paul said in 2 Timothy. Just as Christ's life with all its love, concern, and selflessness was a rebuke to the cosmos of his time, 
So our lives with Christ abiding in us today, we sang about that, right? His power is in us. We sang about that this morning. So Christ abiding in us today brings, will bring criticism, opposition, and persecution from those who cannot comprehend the mystery of God's redemptive grace. He says from their vantage point, looking through their filter, we look crazy. We don't make any sense. We are talking about a world they don't get. He says, because their world, their cosmos is all they can see. And we irritate them, is what he's saying. <clears throat> he says, the Bible teaches we're not to be discouraged by this. Um, I'm sorry, the Bible teaches we're not to be discouraged by this belligerence. I like that word. I thought that fits, right? It's kind of a belligerent take. We are to consider it evidence that we are identified with Christ. Jesus said, blessed are you when they revile and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad for great is your reward in heaven. So then he's talking about don't be deceived, which is this theme we've been covering in James. It says in this complex generation in which we live, it is not easy for the Christian to distinguish between that which is spiritual and that which is worldly. In the Bible, Satan is called an angel of light. He is a great imitator and is not always easy to distinguish between Satan's world and the realm where God reigns. Jesus said that if it were possible, Satan would deceive even the elect. This cosmos has its own entertainment and diversions that so permeate the atmosphere that it makes the way of the cross seem antiquated and irrelevant. In much, in much of the entertainment media fostered by the cosmos, the name of God is profaned, sex is glamorized, and high ethical living and Christian moral standards are laughed at. Even many Christians are tricked into believing that they cannot enjoy life except as a member of the cosmos crowd. Isn't that a great little phrase? The cosmos crowd. Turned that into a biking game. All right. However, the happiest people I know, says Billy are the separated followers of Jesus Christ. He says they're not dependent on artificial stimulants. They do not have to abuse their bodies to relax their minds. The Bible says in your presence is the fullness of joy, Psalm 16. Christianity is not a long list of restrictions. It flings open the windows to the real joy of living. The cosmos would have us believe that following Christ is nothing but a bunch of thou shalt nots. The cosmos would have us believe that Christianity is a killjoy, a stolid kind of life, unnatural, abnormal, resisting all your healthy passions. But the evidence in the Bible is to the contrary. Christ said, I have come that they may have life, and that they may have it more abundantly. And those who have been truly converted to Jesus Christ know the meaning of abundant living. The Bible teaches that worldliness is a force. Right? This is not, he zones in here, so this is important. He says the, the Bible teaches that worldliness, this cosmos he's talking about, is a force, a spirit, an atmosphere of the cosmos that is in opposition to all that is godly and Christian. Its goal is selfish pleasure, material success, and the pride of life. It's ambitious and self-centered. God is not necessarily denied. He is just ignored and forgotten. The Bible is clear that the world's inhabitants are either under the influence of this cosmos with its cunning, deception, and spell, or they are in Christ under the direction 
of the Spirit of God. There is no neutral grounds. The lines are drawn by the Bible. Paul wrote to the Ephesians about the sins in which you once walked. According to the course of this world, we had it up on the screen earlier. According to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. Even when we were dead in our trespasses, God made us alive together in Christ. The world's course, I'm sorry, the words course of this world carry the meaning of current or flow. Right, so he's going to talk about these different flows. There is an undertow, he says, a subtle current that runs against and in contradiction to the will and the way of God. Its eddies are deep and treacherous. They are stirred and troubled by Satan and intended to trap and ensnare those who would walk godly in Christ Jesus. Satan employs every device at his command to harass, tempt, thwart, and hurt the people of God. And his attack is relentless. Paul wrote, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of darkness in this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly realms. That's what this cosmos is made up of, is Billy saying. However, the Christian is not left defenseless in this conflict. God provides the power to give us victory over Satan. Paul said we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. So the question is, how do we win? Billy says we can overcome the onslaught of Satan and the power of this world's system of evil by the blood of the Lamb. We will never overcome by mere human effort. We will never overcome by our deeds of righteousness, however commendable they may be. We will never overcome by mere social concern or identifying ourselves with various social revolutions. The Bible says they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. So we're involved in a spiritual conflict. This is a battle between the forces of God and the forces of Satan, and we are involved in it. And we are asked to choose sides. The Bible warns us about being taken in by the evil of this cosmos. Satan's lies are cleverly mixed with truth. When he tempted Christ, he was convincingly logical and even quoted Scripture. So the Bible instructs Christians to make a clean break with all the evils of the world that we may be separated from them. The Apostle Paul said, Therefore come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord God. Do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. Jesus, and then he, he, he gives this, uh, what seemed a contrary illustration, he says, uh, Jesus ate with publicans and sinners. Nearly everyone Jesus associated with was an outcast. But his relationship then was not purely social, it was redemptive. And then the Bible gives this analogy, and I think this is a, a really helpful analogy. He says, Christians are like the Gulf Stream, right? The Gulf Stream in the Caribbean and then goes up through the Atlantic. He says, which is in the ocean and yet not part of it or different from it. This mysterious current defies the mighty Atlantic. It ignores its tides and flows steadily upon its course. Its color is different, being a deeper blue. Its temperature is different, being warmer. Its direction is different, being from south to north. It is in the ocean, and yet it is not a part or different from it. So we as Christians are in the world, we come in contact with the world, and yet we retain our distinctive kingdom character and refuse to let the world press us into its mold. This world is keenly aware of its emptiness, of its unfulfilled dreams, of its failures to cope with life. The world system is inadequate to meet the deeper needs of the human heart. And I think that's getting 
from my judgment, uh, jumping from Billy here, uh, just the rise of anxiety in our culture. I think we're hitting a, a breaking point with this. He says, um, the world system is inadequate to meet the deeper needs of the human heart. This ideal soil for planting the gospel, and of course this is where Billy would go with it, right? God has seen fit to entrust the work of his kingdom to us. If the world system is changed, it will be changed through our witness. And so he's, he's contrasting the current of the world, the flow the world's going, the direction the world's going, with the flow that uh, Christians are going in the, the kingdom direction that they're heading. And it's talking like it, the Gulf Stream in the Atlantic, it's pulling a different direction. Even though it's in the midst of it, it's going a separate way. And I think that's a great analogy. And he was talking about here... Um, in this sophisticated age that we live in and the, the kind of layers that exist. What year do you think he wrote that? 1968. Yep, 1968. Think of what's changed since 1968. When we talk about the prince of the power of the air, think what's changed in terms of the airwaves there were no cell phones. There was no internet. There was no dish TV. There was no I fit, fit, bit, have a fit. There was, there was none of that stuff when he wrote that. And he was talking about the crisis that was occurring in 1968. Now, if you were alive in 1968, I won't point out names, but you would know that that was a time of crisis in our country massive trauma was occurring in our country in 1968. There was a little thing called the Vietnam War going on. But I think Billy captured something there that he's talking about um, that, that we have to be different. So we're still human, we're still on this planet, but different in our spirits than the people around us. Now, we're not any different than the people around us except for one thing. What's that? That is the presence, the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. God has put His seal upon our lives, and even if we don't know we're different, we're different. And often, non-believers can pick up on that. You do something, what's the first thing they say? Oh, I thought Christians didn't do that. How do you know I'm a Christian? Right? You ever? It's crazy how they know. So let's, uh, uh, when we talk about here the difference of the Holy Spirit, there are really uh, just a couple clear things, two real clear commands in the New Testament with that regard the Holy Spirit. Let's look at both of those. One says we are not to grieve the Holy Spirit. And the second one is we are not to quench the Holy Spirit. Now, this may feel like I'm on a rabbit trail here from James. Uh, I have departed from James. But watch how this all circles back with what James is telling us about keeping ourselves unstained from the world. Let's go to uh, not grieving the Holy Spirit. That's in Ephesians 5. No, that's in Ephesians 4. Okay, Ephesians 4, 19 to 22. I forgot to change it in my notes, sorry. Here's what he says. Does this sound familiar with what we've covered in James the last month and a half? Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And in that connection then, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. How do we grieve the Holy Spirit of God? With our talk. With our tongue. Just like at a party and a kid says something and the parents go, oh no. Right? How many oh no moments have you caused the Holy Spirit with things that you've said? 
Paul's pointing this out, just like James. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by who you were sealed. We mentioned that on the day of redemption. Let And then notice this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Anybody see the parallel there? It's all over the New Testament. Also notice the direct implication about the way to bless the Holy Spirit. You can actually bless God. Did you know that? You can bring God great joy as a son or a daughter. How? Well, how, how do we cooperate with the Holy Spirit? Well, we need to be careful of what we say. Right? This is a particularly troubling one for me. I grew up in a rough background on a rough farm, and I have lots of farm language, and I like to use it because it's colorful. Right? And God has increasingly said, Steve, you know, you haven't been on the farm for 35 years. You really ought to give that up. And, uh, and I confess to you, it's a tough battle because I, I like power in my words and I like to shock people and I feel like I have to use that to do it sometimes. And, and God has increasingly said, you know, my spirit can handle the power side. Oh yeah, that's right. I forget, right? So uh, any of you else struggle with that, you can join me in that. Um, but notice this restraint of the tongue. It, it's not just in what we say, but then also in this passage, how we treat each other. Look at that second part of the list. Let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you and all malice. That's talking about how we're acting, not just talking, but as well how we're acting. I was talking with uh, this week, Arthur is the uh, manager, Pelodin, over at Elevated Sports. Comes to find out he's a believer. He's a follower of Jesus. Very cool. Goes to Alderwood community. And we were talking about some of the confrontations that occur in the parking lot. And he said, yeah, I always tell my people, just imagine your mom is standing next to you. Would you talk that way if your mom was standing next to you? (laughs) And that really changes it, right? Like when we come to church, it changes how you speak. But the problem on the freeway is church ain't with me on the freeway. And I'm going to let somebody have a choice piece of my mind that I can ill afford to use. And body signals and language, I'm acting really badly. How am I acting? Well, I'm acting in bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slammer, slander, malice, right? I'm letting her rip. That does not bless the Holy Spirit. Notice that it says it grieves him, actually. It brings a lot of hurt to his heart. These are all sins of the tongue, but in actuality, they're not just sins of the tongue, they're sins of the heart. What's going on here, really? The, the tongue is merely manifesting or showing what's going on in the heart. And, and I want to give us a, a, a great word on this because a lot of times we think we can live a dual existence where we can stuff that stuff in our heart, but as long as we act nice on the outside, we'll be okay. Right? And so we come to church and they're talking and people go, what a nice guy that Steve is. Right? Do they see the turmoil or the turn that goes on in my heart half the time? No. And that's why Jesus always says, clean the inside of the cup, not the outside of the cup. What is Jesus getting at? He knows that the the restraint is only temporary. We get really sophisticated as we grow up. We've got a lot of coping skills. We've got a lot of uh, skills that we've learned to manage people with. We know how to conduct ourselves. We know what to bring to certain situations, what not to bring. And we develop a fairly sophisticated, complex response system 
that has a lot of filters and checks and balances. So if something comes through, I weigh it all, and then I measure it and say, okay, I will do this. But there is, why is Jesus saying, Fill, take care of the, clean the inside of the cup? Because he's aware of a syndrome that we have as humans. You know, have you heard of this syndrome? It's called the nursing home syndrome. You know what that is? That's our fear of us being in a nursing home. You know why we have a fear of us being in a nursing home? Have you ever gone to a nursing home? Have you ever been there? It's amazing what you hear in a nursing home. And why do you hear such outrageous things in a nursing home? You hear such outrageous things because what's happened? The filters have been stripped. The coping mechanisms are gone. You can't filter anymore what's in your heart. It just comes out. And that can be quite embarrassing. I remember going to one place, Christian great group, name will remain anonymous, and I went along this room and there was a guy in the room and what was coming out of that room was astonishing. Okay? And this person had been a believer, I think he was 83 at the time I knew him. He lived till 96. And the language coming out of the room, you would have never known that guy had ever known those words. But... His systems were getting stripped, right? And he, and he was mad about something, and he didn't have filters anymore. And so now he was just saying what he really thought, right? Just like a little kid, blah, blah, right? And it was like, whoa, you know, his kids would be embarrassed. And, and we have that, that concern of, will I be that person? On the other hand, I've gone into nursing homes, and I've talked to people who, uh, they can't remember their name or your name. Hi, what's your name? My name's Steve. Oh, very nice to meet you. Hi, what's your name? Steve. Oh, very nice to meet you. Hi, what's your name? Steve. Right? It goes on like that. But if you talk to those people and say, hey, tell me about where you grew up. They snap back 40 years and the, they start talking about Jesus. They start talking about what God did for their life and what God did for their family and the ways they saw God working. And you start to realize, you know, this person's mind is gone, but that tape recorder has recorded all the things that God did through life. And it's like, wow, it comes out of them and it's sweet and it's pure and it's clean and they're not bitter and they're not full of rancor. And it's like, man. And, uh, you know, you want to die well. One of the things you should do now is start cleaning the inside of the cup. All right? And that's what we're talking about here. So don't grieve the Holy Spirit. The second thing Scripture says is don't quench the Holy Spirit has some of the same emphasis. Look at 1 Thessalonians here. It says, See that no one repays anyone evil for evil. Isn't that the most natural thing to do? You spit on me, I spit on you. Right? You ever watch two boys in a sandbox? Right? They're playing all of a sudden, bah, 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 right? What are they? Bah, bah, right? Evil for evil. The only difference is as we get older, we get bigger sandboxes. Right? It says, Don't repay anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances. For this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. And do not quench the Holy Spirit. How do you quench the Holy Spirit? Well, you repay evil for evil. You quench the Spirit. If you don't seek the good of another person, you wish evil for them. You, you quench the Holy Spirit. If you don't rejoice in everything, you quench the Holy Spirit. If you don't pray, you quench the Holy Spirit. If you're not thankful, you quench the Holy Spirit. In other words, those things grieve and quench the fire of God in your life. 
says, do not despise prophecies, test everything, hold fast what is good, then abstain from every form of evil. There's that same phrase. Paul's using it. James is using it. Because they knew what it was like to come out of evil. In their particular case, a, a religious system that had gone evil. Started good and went crooked. And so crooked they missed the Messiah. And so James and Paul knew what it was to be self-deceived. Right? James grew up with his brother. Jesus didn't get it. Paul tried to kill the people of Jesus because he didn't get it. And later when they could look back, they went, yikes, don't do what I did. Don't be deceived. Don't grieve the Spirit of God. Don't quench the Spirit of God. So if I allow myself to be stained by evil, right? If I do get stained, I, in other words, I participate it, then I quench the Holy Spirit. How this works is you're going along the day and you, you're tracking along, you're doing good. You've got a godly thought. Godly thought, godly thought, godly thought, godly thought. Yeah, cool. And then another thought comes in and it wants to hijack it. Fun, 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 fun. Sin, but fun, good, tasty, yum, yum, yum. Come this way, right? And you're at that place where you're suddenly wrestling with, ah, do I stay with God because it's really good and Jesus is good? But Oh, that's so, I just want, uh, I was uh, giving, uh, I'll, I'll give that point later. Um, I, I got my point illustrated for myself this week. So, but that, that point where that churn exists, where the two thoughts are unequal, one's of God, one's of the cosmos, this world system. And the question is, which one do I grab? The Bible just wants us to know if we grab the cosmos idea, we're going to grieve the Holy Spirit and we're going to quench the fire of the relationship with God. If we grab the godly thought, then we're going to be empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep going. That's that line. This is what it's talking about right here. What can... Um, so one of the ways to keep the relationship with the Holy Spirit is abstaining, um, opposite, not to be stained, from evil. Uh, ways that we're stained by evil are our language, our thoughts, right, our actions. We've talked about this. So John uh, says this so well in 1 John. And we'll take a look at it here. John says this, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world. So, again, he's talking about this cosmos. Look what he identifies of what's in the world. The desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life. Uh, in other translations, right, we know that as the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the boastful pride of life. That's the things in the world. It says, that is not from the Father, but it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires. But whoever does the will of God abides forever. So the question this morning for us, coming out of James and being unstained by the world, if we were talking about, okay, we have to stay unstained, the question would be, which current is having more sway in your life right now? When I say your life, I mean my life as well, right? Which current? The current of the cosmos or the current of the kingdom? Which current has the deeper pull? Which one are you going along with? Is it the current of the Holy Spirit and his sway towards the kingdom or the current of the cosmos and its pull away from the kingdom? Uh, and here's how you can end it. On your car, in your car, the vehicle you drove this morning, you have what are called warning lights or indicator lights on your dashboard, right? And they come on at certain times telling you that you need to take care of certain things. 
That's not helpful on our car because they stay on all the time. But right, most of you in your cars, they come on when they're supposed to. Okay, that the, these are called early indicator warnings. It's not that when that now a few of them you got to stop right away, like no oil. That would be good to stop right away, right? But on a few of them, the light comes on, check engine light, you're on, yeah, whatever, right? And you just keep driving, right? And eventually, though, it's telling you if you don't take care of this, something's going to go boom. And it's probably your engine, and it's probably about $4,000. So you'd be wise to stop as big of a pain as it is, go to the auto shop, have them do a sensor on that, have them figure out what it is and get that fixed. Now, everybody knows the sooner you fix that, the better it is, right? Uh, If you drive for months, you're really taking it into your hands, hoping you can beat the odds, and most of the time, we don't beat the odds. Likewise, in this passage of 1 John, John gives us some early indicator warning lights. In other words, how would we know if, if we were in the current of the cosmos? How would we know if we were in the current of the kingdom? What would be some early indicator warning lights that we can now learn and use that will actually help us so that when it pops up, we go, ah, I know what that is. And we go right to the Father with it. And we go to God with it. And we we go into the the station and get it checked really quick, right? All you got to say is, you know, God, is this from you? Let's look at these, uh, the warnings of being stained by the world as James warns us about. Let's look at these indicator lights. They're the ones that John just gave. Here's three key arenas of staining that happen for us. First one is the lust of the flesh. Most of the time we think this, of this sexually, right? And, uh, you know, the, the sexual side, but it can be appetite side, right? Um, and I want. Have you ever wanted? I want, right? And in your mind, or, and you're just sick of battle, and I want. Uh, I had this week with donuts. I just had a fixation on having a donut, right? And I'm trying to lose weight and I want to look handsome for Kayla's wedding. And so donuts don't exactly equate to handsome dad, right? And so, and then of course I'm doing this stupid message, so I got to go, you have to be obedient to your own message. That's the worst thing. It'd be fine if you had to be obedient. I do not like that it boomerangs back on me. But anyways, so I'm in a donut crisis, right, this week. And then I drive by Frost Donuts. And then I go into Albertsons. There's more. I mean, it's like donuts are popping up everywhere. Now, I did not eat a donut. I'm so proud of myself, I want to tell you. Thank you. Thank you. But I sinned by eating other chocolate to compensate for it. I didn't win the battle. I just changed the turf. All right? Any of you do that? Right? The lust of the flesh, what your flesh desires, can be a really strong pull. But it's also a great indicator light. That was a great thing for me this week, going along, going, hey, you know what you're talking about. You know what God's done in your life. You know what you're really trying to do. Now, are you going to listen or are you just going to cave? And it's a great indicator, like, to go to the Lord with that quickly. The second one is the lust of the eyes. If you live in Mill Creek, you have probably noticed that there are a few people that have some things that you don't have. Or they have the same things you have, but a lot nicer things than you have. Right? And you've noticed they have a nicer house and they have a nicer pickup truck and they have a nice, nicer SUV and they have a nicer boat and they got money so they have a nicer body and nicer teeth and nicer hair, nicer eye, nicer nose, nicer breath, nice, right? All nicer, nicers that we can get in our culture. And you have gone, 
man, wow, how come they get that? I'd sure like that. I want. Right? Here we are back to I want again. Right? Have you ever wanted that? The Bible calls that coveting. Coveting what your neighbor has. It's as old as the world. Right? This cosmos system. And that can be an early indicator light. Uh, and one of the places where this you get caught is you start to realize it's not so much I want as I'm unthankful. And I'm actually telling God I'm not thankful for the actual things he's given me. So as I'm driving around in my Suburban with the lights that stay on, on the dash all the time, and I see a brand new Ford or Chevy or whatever, Dodge Ram, go by, and I go, ooh, I would really like that. I have to thank God for my Suburban with the lights on. Because you know Why? It still runs great. It's taken me all over the country to Wisconsin and Arizona and California and weddings and family things and it still runs great, doesn't burn any oil, and runs fantastic. I, can, I need to be thankful because here's, we've got a really entitled mentality. How do they sell this to us on advertising? You deserve. Have you heard that? You deserve this. You deserve this raise. You deserve this car. You deserve this kind of luxury. You deserve this kind of luxury. And, and they feed that into our system. And what's sick about it is we start to believe it. Listen to your kids. They think they deserve all kinds of things. Right? And it's just a crack up. You're like, where did you get that idea? And you realize they're every bit as entitled as we are. We just cover it a little bit better most of the time as adults. But the lust of the eyes, there is no end to the want that your eyes see. I want. Okay? And so, another early indicator. And then the last one, this one ties with the tongue really well, the boastful pride of life. Right? Again, building myself up more than I am. Boasting about who I am. You ever cut in a conversation where the, the people are talking, the story's going along, and, and then you jump in, oh yeah, I've done that too. And everybody kind of looks at you like, what does that have to do with anything? And you're like, no, I really got to sell. I'm just like you guys. I'm every bit as cool. And I got stories like that too, right? And, and this boasting about who we are and what we've done, and it's insidious. And you start to realize it really isn't about the stories. It's about the attitude behind the stories. Okay? I want to brag. And I want to have, I want to strut. And I want to have the things, I want to have the power I see other guys. And I want to have the honor that I see other guys having. And I want to have the stuff. And I, I want to have, you know, if you're a gal, I want to have, I want to walk through and have people notice me, right? The boastful pride of life can be a really great early indicator system for which current you're in. It tells you right away if you're in the current of the kingdom or the current of the cosmos, right? So this morning, let's get down and dirty and really practical here. Which one stands out to you? Which one's blinking on your dashboard? If you had to pick one of the three, which one's blinking? Saying, take it into the shop. Go to the Lord. Which, which one would flash for you? Then let's pray. Fathers, we look at this. We realize that Probably everybody's got something blinking. And so we, we prayed this morning and asked for your grace in this. We also, it's a powerful passage in James, just what you've walked us through and how to stay unstained from the world. And it's just so easy to get mucked up. 
it's hard to stay pure in the environments that we have to operate in and we don't help when we capitulate and cave in. Would you wash us? Would you cleanse us? Would you help us get back into the current of the kingdom? And would you help us to be satisfied with you? And we ask for that favor in your name. Amen.